0: Welcome to Conflicts of Interest, Swiss Peace's academic podcast dedicated to research in peace and conflict. The idea is simple, you either work in or you study these fields and you have a long list of books on your shelf that you've been wanting to read but you never have the time for it. So, this is where we come in. On a quarterly basis, we carefully select one of the most original books related to peace building that has been published recently, let's say in the last two years. And we meet with with the author to discuss uh, the book in this podcast. To give you a grasp of the core arguments, the relevance for your work, and then hopefully you will go out and also read it. Um, I am Dr. Dana Landau. I'm a senior researcher in Swiss Pieces Mediation Program. And for this episode, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Sophie Haspislaw as our guest. Sophie Haspislaw is an assistant professor of political science at the American University in Cairo. And she was previously working as head of policy at Conciliation Resources and has also worked for the International Crisis Group and the United Nations, among others. And she's joining us today from Cairo to discuss her book that is literally hot off the press. It came out this month with Manchester University Press and is called Proscribing Peace, How Listing Armed Groups as Terrorists Hurts Negotiations. So as the title suggests, the book discusses how international proscription regimes that followed the 9-11 attacks have impacted peace negotiations. Uh, It's really a fascinating account of how a whole range of armed conflicts around the world were reframed as part of the war against terror or wars against terrorists, and it shows very nicely how this has impacted local conflict dynamics and their possible resolution. Um, and the book really starts from this paradox that despite this power of labeling an actor as a terrorist and saying, you know, they're beyond the pale, politicians, of course, do talk to terrorists. And the, the, the case that uh, Sophie looks at in a lot of depth is the negotiations between the Colombian government and the FARC. Um, and how prescription impacted these actors getting to the table. So Sophie, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Dana. And that was um, such an amazing introduction. I feel like uh, I almost have nothing to
0: add. (laughs) You will have plenty to add. It's such a rich book. So thank you for being here. In fact, we will just start off with our um, news anchor. So I'd like you to answer just one question, which is when did current events last make you think about your book and why?
1: Well, clearly, the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is... Uh, almost, in a way, if you want, um, uh, kind of a symbolic message of my book. Um, unfortunately, uh, listing armed groups as terrorists um, hasn't worked. And I think if the, the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan is anything uh, to show, is that um, the policies that we've had for the last 20 years, since 9-11 and the war on terrorists, have failed to achieve their, their objectives. So for me, um, what this moment tells us, um, taking stock after 20 years of a strategy, um, is that it's maybe time to rethink a strategy. That post-9-11, of course, There was, um, you know, a huge outrage and a rejection, uh, rightfully so, of of the type of violence and and these attacks. But the prescription regimes, or um, if you want to describe it another way, the blacklisting regimes that was developed post 9-11 and that was embedded in the multilateral system, particularly through UN Resolution 1373, which in effect was the first UN resolution of its kind. It was the first resolution um, to use chapter seven against a non-state armed group ever in the history of the UN. It was the first resolution to focus on terrorism without defining it geographically or giving it any boundaries. And of course, as we know, without a clear definition of what constitutes terrorism and what doesn't. So in effect, what this resolution did is that it reframed armed groups around the world as terrorists. And it encouraged countries and member states but also regional organizations. And I can say a little bit more about that to develop their own listing regimes, right? And to, on the same list, associate armed groups like um, ETA in the Basque Country to the PKK uh, in Turkey, to Hamas, uh, to Al-Qaeda, to the Taliban, right? Homogenizing groups that are completely different And in effect, um, placing international policy squarely in the camp of uh, the states against the terrorist actors.
0: Yes, thank you very much. So definitely extremely uh, topical. Of course, we've also just marked just a couple of days ago the the 20th anniversary um, of the 9-11 attacks. And you really show so beautifully um, in the book how how that moment to that one wonders really as a reader whether when this resolution was passed and when there was this, this coming together of, of, of um, within the General Assembly even, but particularly, of course, among Western countries of a, a consensus around what needed to be done, whether there was um, an awareness of the far-reaching effects that this would have on um, a range of conflicts around the world. And, and you actually start off the book very interestingly with saying there has been some Research, uh, particularly from the practitioner side, which we're of course also interested in at Swiss Peace, um, on how this affected third parties that are interested uh, trying to help get actors to the table, uh, start mediation and dialogue processes. But there had been so far before your book not that much work on how this actually affected the conflict parties. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, so basically, <clears throat> that's what spurred uh, the interest in the topic as well, right? At the time, um, when I started my research on this book, I was actually at Conciliation Resources and the head of policy there. And along with you know other organizations, um, you know Swiss, Bergov and HD, um, uh, you know um, lots of different uh, third party actors, mediators, peace building organizations, um, they were the ones. That was the space where the thinking on this issue was growing. You know People were realizing, well, hold on a minute, this is having an impact in terms of the space that we have to, to operate. One moment that was particularly key, I think, for the practitioner realm was about 10 10 years ago now, a bit more, 11 years ago, was the U.S. Supreme Court decision that was taken um, in 2010 that unequivocally stated that any type of engagement with listed groups, so whether it was for conflict resolution, even for peaceful purposes, even if it's to convince them to give up on violence, was to be considered material support to terrorism, right? And that really, like, sent, um, you know, shudders through the spine of so many organizations around the world, because obviously U.S. law is extraterritorial, right? And it also seeped through funding mechanisms. um, And so um, I think... The, the practitioner realm uh, would produce really very interesting and insightful um, research on this issue, but it hadn't really been explored uh, so much from an academic perspective. But also what I realized when I started off with this book is that I was initially going to look at the impact it was having on third-party actors. But then I realized how the impact was way more far-reaching. And I guess that's one of the messages I have, is that we need to go beyond... Calling for um, you know um, a sort of space for mediators to be able to act or humanitarian actors to act and and accept those lists as a given, right? We need to question the whole framework because what my book shows is that fundamentally it affects. Um, The nature of the armed conflict, right? It affects the power relationship and the balance between the armed parties. Um, It obviously affects the space for third party mediation. And I can say a little bit more about that as well. Uh, But it also affects the prospect for the resolution um, of, of the armed conflicts and the processes at play. And that's really what I focus on in the book. And I really hope that the the sort of analytical framework and the ideas that I try to develop in the book can be helpful for others who want to look at the issue in different
0: contexts. Exactly. so I already found it extremely helpful to to, to think through the way you, you sort of outline the different effects that prescription can have on the different parties and especially um one tends to think uh, you know as a, as a reader i haven't focused that much on, on this particular issue but one tends to think of, of listed groups and and this listing regimes as affecting you know containing travel bans asset freezes sort of all these very concrete ways in which listed groups um should be um impeded from from their activities <laughs> through through sort of practical means but i think what your analysis shows very well is the intersection between material and symbolic effects of being listed and in fact that the symbolic effect of having that label that terrorist label and being on a list um say if you are a, a maoist party or rebellion in one country and you get on a list with a with a group far away a secessionist group or a global islamist organization um how this affects actually um on a symbolic level uh and on a discursive level uh, your standing Um, And how these two interact. So maybe you could tell the listeners a little bit more about this interaction of effects. Exactly,
1: Dana. I mean, you really uh, point to to a key element. So uh, basically, the the material and the symbolic effect of listings are both um, deeply shape the situation, but they also reinforce each other, Right. So um, you're right to highlight that the kind of the basic material impact generally of listing are travel ban and asset freezes, right? It's very rare for a listing regime to explicitly say criminalize third-party contact. The US listing regime does that, but the UN doesn't, the EU's listing doesn't. But what does happen because of the listing is that um, you the the government that is in effect legitimized by the listing of its opponent is bolstered, right? Both symbolically, uh, in terms of legitimacy and political support, but also often very much materially, right? So if I'm gonna go to the case of, of Colombia, um, uh, you know, the, the military and intelligence support that it got from the US was, was huge. Um, just after 9-11, Uh, The U.S. Congress, for instance, voted that all uh, military aid that used to go in counter-narcotics could now go in the war against terrorism, right? So um, these material and symbolic effects interact and reinforce each other and have direct repercussion um, on the nature of the conflict. So both sort of increasing the asymmetry between the armed actors, um, but also... Um, making uh, the the possibility um, of resolving it uh, much trickier. So what do I mean by that? what I found is that prescription um, also uh, sort of distorts the classic conflict uh, resolution paradigm of rightness. So, for those uh, who know what I'm talking about, the listeners, when it comes to the the notion of rightness, uh, and I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about. So, it's the idea uh, that was developed by by William Zartman a while ago, which is still a central idea when you think about timing in conflict resolution. Right when is a conflict sort of ripe to be resolved? And so others have used other terms like readiness, like, uh, um, you know, and, and and it's also an idea that's been critiqued. But what's interesting with prescription and is also very alarming about it, um, is that it seems to disor- distort this paradigm in such a way that it's making the possibility of getting to even pre-negotiations, right, much more convoluted. So you have the state, The government that's so bolstered both materially and symbolically by the listing that it kind of blurs its perception and it doesn't see, um, uh, uh, you know, its military stalemate. Right. It doesn't see an end in sight. It thinks that it can win the war militarily. So that's happening on one side. Um, On the other side, there's no way out, right? There's no possibility to start engaging with a group because you've built up the actor as a terrorist. And as we know, we can't sell a negotiation with terrorists easily to our public and to the citizens at large. So you're stuck. You're like in a policy straitjacket. And so what was fascinating for me with the case of Colombia and the FARC is that the Government managed to overcome this, right? And what I try and do as well in the book is unpick and unpack that. So, other authors before me had already talked about the importance of unlabeling before negotiation, like Harmony Torres had in talking terrorists and transformation. Um, you know, other conflict resolution authors had already picked up on notions around devilification, right? Um, and, and the need to overcome some of these obstacles, even in the linguistics form, ahead of negotiations. But I guess what I'm trying to do in the book is to to try and explain, well, how did that happen specifically in the case of prescription?
0: Yes, and I think this is really a, a really important contribution of the book is that you show um, that once this label is out there, um, It takes on a life of its own and it's extremely hard um, to get rid of it. And there's really, you have a very rich analysis of really hundreds of speeches uh, of of, um, FARC, uh, public uh, speeches of of FARC commanders, but also of uh, successive presidents of, of Colombia and actors involved in the peace process, where you really show very neatly how there was an active attempt at some point to um, kind of I think at some point you say disarm the language and then you use this term of the linguistic ceasefire. So maybe you could tell our readers why you found that linguistic ceasefire to be to be key to enabling the actors to get to a negotiation.
1: Yes, so um, the linguistic ceasefire I realized became really central to all the dynamics that led to the beginning of the negotiations in, in Colombia so um, first, I wanted to say a couple of words about how I came to this idea because I think it's really important when we do research that we give um, sort of acknowledgement and ownership as well to our interviewees, and especially in a context like Colombia where the analysis is so strong and amazing. You know, I, I really want to highlight that, and I try and make a point of, of mentioning that in in my book as well. Is that um, I was in Bogota and I was having these conversations. Um, with people. And people were picking up on this, you know, or saying, you know, the the Santos is changing the discourse around the FARC, right? And so I went back and looked at all the discourses and I looked at at the FARC's uh, discourses over a period of 20 years. That was a huge amount of work. But then I went back and spoke to people again and I tried to unpick what happened. And so I described this as a linguistic ceasefire with three key components. And so basically what happened was that Um, for reasons I can go into uh, in a separate bit, um, uh, Juan Manuel Santos had decided he wanted to create the space for um, uh, public negotiation with the armed group, right? And so he needed to strategically shift uh, the way that the armed group was, was perceived. And so the first thing that happened was that he started acknowledging the existence and recognizing the conflict, right? So that's the first element of the linguistic ceasefire. Before that, it was all a war against terrorists, especially under the eight years of President Uribe's administration, where the presence of the conflict was denied to such an extent that I remember uh, interviewing people who worked for the UN who said they couldn't even talk about the conflict, but then how do you talk about internally displaced people of refugees if there is no conflict? Do we talk about economic migrants. You know, it had become completely absurd, if you like. So the first point was to recognize the conflict, recontextualize the armed group, the listed armed group, in the reality of the conflict. And here, the acknowledgement of the victims was essential, and the victims of the conflict. In the case of Colombia, in another context, they might be different. The second key element. Uh, was dropping the label. And that was really apparent in the discourse analysis is that Santos just stopped calling the FARC terrorists. He started calling them uh, sometimes violent groups, Um, later on guerrilla groups. I mean, there was a whole evolution in the discourse, right? Uh, But he very strategically stopped using that label to describe the group. Now, it got a little bit complex because in the case of Colombia, he did allow, say, the military to keep on using the label. And I can come back to that later, but that goes to your point, Dana, on how hard it is to shake it off, right? But then the third element of the linguistic ceasefire is this idea of starting to uncouple the act and the actor. So what do I mean by that? It was very apparent to me that uh, when an armed group is framed as a terrorist, then the idea is that change is impossible, right? That the the vilification is so extreme and so heightened that they are... tagged as irrational uh, people that you can't do business with, um, not people that you can engage with right? in a political process or in a negotiation. And so by by starting to unpick the act and the actor, then you allow change uh, to become possible. And so these three elements really played out in the case of Colombia. And what was fascinating for me was that um, it was only through this uh, linguistic ceasefire that you can then start having Um, not necessarily a real shift from the asymmetry to the symmetry between the armed group and the government because that was incredibly difficult in a situation like Colombia, but you do have a sort of a leveling of the playing field right, it also affected uh, that element, but also crucially, it started creating a way out right, when I was describing how it was blocked before, what you're doing in effect is you're starting to rebuild the possibility of an actor that you can negotiate politically with
0: Yeah, and I think this is a very um, important element of of your analysis uh, that sometimes get lost in discussions of of Colombia when people sort of more casually use the idea, um, which you mentioned, the the famous, the ripeness theory that is often reduced. And and you say this in the book, it's sometimes reduced to the mutually hurting stalemate, this idea that there's got to be a stalemate that the two actors, the, the conflict parties want to get out of. And that's what will lead them to the negotiation table. But that, of course, there is also the way out that is needed and that internally the parties need to have this discussion and, and be convinced that that the way out uh, exists. And in um, uh, the, the the way the Colombian case is sometimes described, or let's say the the recent uh, the, the final round of negotiations that led to the peace agreement, it's sometimes very simply put as a, as a as where where the causal path is presumed that actually li- the listings regime and the the turning point which you described with nine eleven that gave the Colombian government all this sort of support also from abroad to to fight the FARC as a terrorist organization that this basically weakened the FARC to such an extent that they were basically, yeah, that they were
1: sort of... uh... Beats to the negotiation table, right? So this idea of simplification, they were battered and bruised so much that they had no, you know, no other way than just to, you know, negotiate an exit, right? Exactly. And so I guess, yeah, and I guess what what I saw in my research is a very different story, right? So obviously, uh, the listing and the material components of the listing, but also what came along with the reframing of the war and the support they got from the US did have... a you know, a military impact and strategic impact on the on the FARC. I'm not denying that. But the story that's not often told is how it affected the government, right? And what's, what I found fascinating is that the government itself, having been bolstered to such a huge extent, also realised the limits of its own strategy. Right. So, um, you know, the government, uh, the army committing increasing numbers of human rights violation, extrajudicial executions that were coming to light. Um, The U.S. free trade agreement was put on hold because of this human rights uh, violations. Um, And Juan Manuel Santos, when he comes in, is very conscious of that because he had been the minister of defense. So he was very conscious of the limits of the military strategy. Right. And so I think that's what we forget when we simplify the story around rightness is that it's very much an inter-party dynamic. Right? so it's both on the side of the government and the armed group but it's also an intra-party dynamic and that's one of the other things I try and do in the in the book is map out those dynamics so even within the FARC it's not so much that they were just battered and bruised to the negotiation table is that they also wanted to salvage the, what they had left of a political capital mm-hmm. and persona right? Absolutely. so in a way it was the pull of the way out the possibility of having a negotiated exit right, that
0: played an essential role and you show actually uh, in the book, how on the one hand the the listing did, of course, to an extent contribute to 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 a stalemated situation, which eventually led to the negotiations, but it also may really hampered this because. It precisely the symbolic effects of the of the of the listing and the and the naming as a terrorist group took on a life of its own. And you you mentioned earlier the the policy straitjacket that the government found itself in, where how do you reverse having vilified the group to such an extent and having actually denied that there is anything anybody to talk to because of, this is not a political group that makes legitimate demands. This is just a terrorist organization attacking a democracy. You show how that shifted and then you know, how do you get the population on board with a, a public or at the beginning secret, but eventually public peace process? And um, of course, the elephant in the room, um, your book is about the pre-negotiation phase. It's about getting to the table, but the elephant in the room is the the referendum that actually was very narrowly defeated. And maybe you could tell us a little bit more what how this links in with your analysis of the discourse.
1: Exactly. So uh, I think Someone said to me um, that, uh, you know, listing is a bit like uranium, it goes into the battlefield and seeps in it for years to come, and that's exactly what it is, right? So once once it's um, used, it takes on a life of its own. And so, you know, I do trace in the book how the linguistic ceasefire helped just enough to get the negotiation on the ground, off the ground, right? But it kept on having effects during the negotiation and beyond. So maybe very briefly, uh, one of the things I mentioned is that the Colombian army didn't stop using the terrorist label, right? And whole um, parts of society in Colombia and the media and others didn't stop using that label because it had taken on a life of its own, right? FARC equal terrorist, and that's just that, you know, uh, in the communication world, sometimes we also like to simplify, right? So once you have an easy label, you kind of keep using it. And what was fascinating was that towards the end of the negotiation, when the government felt that they'd gone so far that there was no turning back, right, and that the FARC were really going to have to transition... That's when you see Juan Manuel Santos going to the Colombian press, making an appeal uh, to stop using the label, Um, writing communiques within his government, asking his ministers, people in the the government, but also in the military to stop using the label. But that was only in 2015. The negotiations had started in 2012, right? So that shows that kind of the continued impact. But it was too little too late, right? Right. And there was also very little effort possible on the part of the folk to self-devilify, if you like, right? To also change their own image because they couldn't have access to the Colombian public. They couldn't. They were isolated um, in Cuba. You needed a special permit to make, meet them. Also, because of the listing, um, they weren't um, allowed to, to hold events or anything like that, right? And so what you see is that when the Colombian government and the FARC come back to the C- Colombian public and say, well, we've negotiated this great peace agreement, the Colombian were like, no. Thank you very much. What are you doing negotiating, you know, giving away our country to these terrorists, right, in effect? And I think it really had an impact still um, uh, on on the perception, right? Um, And years later as well, right, we're in 2021 now, um, the the agreement was finally signed and accepted, Um, years ago, and you still have FARC leaders, civil society activists, others who are being murdered and killed, also um, in a way linked to this continued polarization and branding uh, of of the group um, as continued terrorists. And what's very interesting in the case of the FARC is that they did end up changing their name, right? Initially, they hadn't changed their names uh, when they transferred into you know a political party and then they they did very badly uh, in the elections that followed uh, the peace agreement and now they realize that they they need i think themselves to go much
0: further you know in their self-devilification if you like mm. that's really interesting maybe uh, one one Lesson that or I was thinking whether you have lessons for other cases is maybe to give the, the listeners a sense of the way the book is, is built. There's actually um, there's the part where you uh, analyze uh, first the history of prescription, uh, the impacts that prescription has on conflict resolution introducing all these really um, uh, useful and interesting new concepts, such as the linguistic ceasefire and others. And then you go into analyzing this really rich um, case this uh, with all the discourse that you've analyzed and the interviews you've done, where you compare between the Caguan negotiations and the Havana negotiations. So, in terms of getting to the negotiation table. And then this is, of course, quite interesting from a methodological point of view, because in the middle, you have 9-11 and this critical juncture, this change. And so you you can make the case that the Havana negotiations were impacted by um, the the international proscription and the listings regime. Um, But maybe to hone in on the Colombian case, of course, this is not the only thing that happened in between. And one thing that struck me uh, reading the book was to what extent it is also not just the difficulty of getting population on board in a way the second time around. So once there has been hope, and you described so beautifully the, the, the demonstrations that took place all over Colombia in the 1990s, no more war, for peace, and so on. And then that shifts entirely in um, 2000s, where it's no more farc it's a, it's against the farc it's not so longer against against the conflict so you have this strong polarization and i wonder what, to what extent that is also just the disillusionment with having gone through a peace process that had failed and how what lessons does this case hold for getting civil society broader population on board for a renewed attempt after a failure
1: mm-hmm. I think you're 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 right to point this out, uh, Dana, and I think that's a key element as well. You know, uh, that 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 contributed to the story. So, um, the the way I look at the case of the fog is it's it's a, it's an intra-case comparison, basically, right, of two negotiation processes either side of of 9/11. And I did this to really be able to um, sort of um, try and figure out what processes happened the first time around and how it happened and how it was different the second time around, right? Because because of the fact that it was one of the first books on this subject to really, you know, go deep and try and and generate, right, Uh, the ideas and the analytical frame and all of that. But what was fascinating with the story is that I think you're very right. In the 1990s, um, almost the conflict parties were brought to the table because of the sheer strength uh, and the political will of the people who'd had enough, Um, of the violence and the humanitarian impact of the violence. And it was really about no more war, right? Um, uh, If you fast forward to, you know, much later, 2008, uh, in the middle of the Uribe administration, it's very much no FARC, yeah? You get rid of the FARC, you get rid of the problem. So, of course, the failure of the Kaiwan is always part of the story, right? Um, And I think with these kind of, when we analyze conflicts and peace, it's all very granular and, and complex. And I'm not saying, you know, there's just one thing that has an impact, I'm not claiming, you know, it's kind of only prescription, right? It's always gonna be linked to something. And so, of course, the way the FARC behaved during the Taiwan made it very easy Uh, for the uh, then Uribe administration to reframe it as a war against terrorists. But the story that's not often told is about the government as well, right? And how the government used the Taiwan to its own advantage, right? When it came to the negotiation in the uh, late 90s, the government was really close to a failing state. It was very, um, you know, militarily, it was incredibly weak. The FARC were much more powerful. And in a way, if you like, if you think of uh, classic concepts uh, in our field, there's often an assumption that the armed group is weaker. But in that case, it was the opposite. And like what we see with the Taliban, right, in Afghanistan. So it kind of makes us question a lot of of our our assumptions. So I do think that the Colombian uh, public felt very disappointed and disillusioned. But I think in 2001, they felt disappointed and disillusioned also from both sides. and I think when you look at the very early days, uh, post-Kaiwan, there was still talk of efforts at continuing some kind of dialogue, some kind of, of, of negotiation. But I think where tapping into the terrorist discourse and the terrorist framing enabled um, the, 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 the government at the time to do was to really shift shift that narrative. And if you like what the government succeeded to do is to really sell this uh, this vision of the conflict. It was no longer a conflict, it became a war against terrorists. And so the idea when you frame a conflict like that is that if you eliminate the terrorists, you eliminate the problem, right? And then you sell this idea that a military solution is. Possible. Exactly. And so that's kind of really what I tried to... And, it, and,
0: and in fact, you and show very, very neatly that this has uh, another effect of really um, focusing our attention away from one aspect, which is state violence, right? By, fo- by this excessive focus on the terrorists and, and which came out of the reasons you described around 9-11 and the global war on terror um, understandable efforts to try to limit and, and contain this uh, phenomenon had the effect of really distorting the view of, uh, from a conflict resolution perspective of one important uh, key actor and, and key dynamic of violence. So um, it's really a, a really, really great, rich analysis. And um, I think we're almost out of time, so we have to start wrapping up. But I just also wanted to mention that one contribution that you make here is that you actually were able to speak to many of the people who were involved in getting these negotiations going, including from the FARC side. And you mentioned at the end of the book that uh, you know one effect of prescription is also that it hampers potentially researchers' access to these actors.
1: Yes. I tried to explain a little bit in the book how I was able to do the research that I could, right? So I, I was able to do it because I was based in the UK. Strangely, the UK didn't have the fork on the list, so it didn't hamper me in terms of being in a, in a UK higher education setting uh, at the time when I was uh, researching the book, right? If I had done the same amount of direct interviews and kind of granular analysis on another arm group, um the story could have been very different. And when I was doing this research and also when I was engaging in discussions uh, with the policymaker and practitioner world, I realized that actually there are a lot of uh, research students out there and researchers who um, are not able to pursue the kind of research that they want to be doing. And it's really affecting the quality of the analysis that we have on these groups Right um, and how much we know of them or not. Right, if we're not able to ever either, you know, also engage with the groups directly um, and be able to speak with them and to interview them.
0: Absolutely, yeah. thank you so much for for also highlighting this. So we have to unfortunately draw to an end slowly, but thank you again. Uh, We usually round off with our little policy window. So this is a special feature of two minutes where you can imagine standing in front of 200 policymakers, imagine something like the World Economic Forum or similar, and you have the unique opportunity to bring home the key messages from your research. What should they consider as they move forward?
1: So I think the problem with listing armed groups as terrorists is that you're making it harder to get out and resolve these conflicts. We all know that these conflicts require a political solution, but in effect by listing these actors you're making the political solution even less feasible or untenable. What needs to happen is that we have to start separating the act and the actor by merging the terrorist actor to the act of terrorism, so by making an armed group just a terrorist and no longer, you know, um, social or political or whatever other type of movement, and you're simplifying the armed group to that only reality and, in effect, merging it with a type of warfare, because that's what it is. Terrorism is a tool alongside other tools. You're simplifying the situation to such a degree that you're also losing sight of state violence. And... What I would uh, call for is to look at, um, you know, the violent actions both of states and non-state actors, but slightly separating the actual act from the actors.
0: Thank you very much, Sophie, for for having been with us for this um, pitch at the end and for the great discussion and also for writing the book. So to our listeners, if you're now intrigued, and I'm sure you are, uh, go ahead to Manchester University Press and you can buy the book there. It's called Prescribing Peace, How Listing Armed Groups as Terrorists Hurts Negotiations. And I have just been informed earlier that until the end of this year, you can get a fabulous 40% off if you use the code PEACE40 at checkout. We will have this in the show notes as well. And so um, thank you all for listening. Um, This was delivered to you by our producer, Sanjali Jobarte, and myself, Donna Landau. And uh, thank you to our guest, Sophie Haskislaw, for being with us. Um, There's more from us if you go to Conflicts of Interest on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We have two previous episodes and there will be more to come. And if you like what you heard and you want to keep us motivated, please hit like and subscribe.